It's good to see all of you here on this holiday weekend. I know that many folks are away. Pastor Bill and his family are in Ellensburg visiting some family up there. And so he asked me to fill the pulpit uh, for him today. And uh, I was talking with Miss Anna Rieger before service and uh, told her that in honor of the memorial holiday, and as a special reward for all of you who came to church this morning, I'm going to preach until 1 o'clock. <clears throat> uh, yeah, that's kind of what she said, too. <laughs> she, she looked alarmed at first. Uh, and then she told me that I could preach as long as I wanted, or words to this effect, I could preach as I, long as I wanted, but she and everybody else would be leaving before 1 o'clock. <laughs> so um, I won't preach until 1, Lord willing. But we will spend some time this morning in Mark chapter 15, if you'd find your place in the scriptures there. Mark chapter 15. As we're continuing in this series of studies in the Gospel of Mark, we come to the point in Jesus' life where the crucifixion is uh, really at hand. And we find ourselves in Pilate's judgment hall in the scene before us today. In this scene, we witness Jesus on trial for his very life. Now, this is a necessary step in the course of these events because justice, which courts are about, requires due process of law and consideration of evidence in a trial. Before Jesus could be justly executed, he would need to be tried and found guilty of capital offenses. Now in a courtroom there are many things that matter, not the least of which is an interest in motives. A motive is a reason for doing something that we do. Motives account for our words and our actions, and therefore they are very important. We realize that motives very often play a part in our consideration even of actions. It may be, for example, that we witness somebody doing a good thing, and yet there's a tarnish put on the good thing they do if the motive is evil or wicked. For example, maybe somebody pays you a compliment. That's a good thing. But then you discover that the real motivation they had in paying you the compliment is that they want you to do them a favor. And so, not that you're disinclined to do favors for people, but you realize you've just been manipulated by the giving of a compliment. At other times, there may be something that somebody does that's not all that good and desirable, and yet we're forgiving because we understand that their intentions were good. Maybe they said something stupid. Anybody ever done that? And uh, if you were to be taken for what you said, folks might have a dim view of you. But you realize, well, I realize that the person didn't really mean that, that they just were inelegant in the way they made the comment they made. Motives matter. And they matter in a courtroom particularly because the only legitimate motive in a trial and in a court is to do what is right and just. But unfortunately, often... That is not the motive that really is revealed upon careful analysis. Often there are other motives hidden, sometimes not so hidden, but evident in the course of decisions and actions taken in the so-called pursuit of justice. Now in the setting for our text this morning, which is Mark 15, verses 1 through 15, we find the setting to be Pilate's judgment hall. And we see a courtroom drama unfold before our eyes. 
The story, the story centers primarily in the dialogue, interactions verbally, but not exclusively verbally, involving Pilate, the Jewish leaders, a crowd, and the Lord Jesus himself. Their words and their interactions, together with Mark's comments on the account, disclose much about the motives that were operating in that courtroom setting. The rightful question to ask of Pilate's judgment hall on that very day would be this. Where was justice? Was justice served? In Pilate's hall we find a confluence of mixed motives. And their motives proved to have little to nothing to do with true justice. As we watch the account unfold before us, take a look with me, if you would, at verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, verse 1 begins with the Jewish leader center stage, and they're finalizing a plot that would ultimately lead to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. We saw something of the deliberations of this consultation, as it's called here in verse 1 of chapter 15, in chapter 14 last week. As Pastor Bill pointed out to us in verses 53 to 65, the back and forth among the Sanhedrin council trying to craft a charge to bring against the Lord Jesus. This was not an easy task, for as we read in that passage, they couldn't get a straight story. They couldn't agree on what legitimate charges were. They couldn't marshal sufficient evidence to make a case that could compel uh, a guilty verdict. And so they were long and hard at it trying to find something. Now there's a bit of a, of a switch of scene that that 14th chapter ends with in the attention to Peter and his denials. And that's where the chapter last time ended. But back in chapter 15, we find not necessarily a separate meeting of the Sanhedrin, but a resumed attention to the final stages of that meeting where these Jewish leaders are going to determine a charge to bring against Jesus. Now, the, the one charge that they might have been able to make was the charge of blasphemy. And you may recall that from chapter 14 last week because the, the priest directly asked Jesus the question if he was the Christ. And he said, I am. And then he quoted a biblical passage to support his claim. And you remember how righteously indignant the chief priest was at this act of blasphemy. But there's a problem for the Sanhedrin, and that is that blasphemy is not a capital offense in a Roman court. And so that charge would not really cut any uh, ice in Pilate's hall. The, the Roman government would not have considered blasphemy to be a punishable crime. It has to do with their Jewish religion. Let them have their religion, but it's not in accordance with Roman law, they would reason. But we might ask the question, well, why does it matter what the Romans think? Because the Jewish authorities had the, uh, the rights and indeed the privileges to conduct trials and to render verdicts, but they did not have the authority to execute a death sentence. That had to come from the Romans. 
So while they had put Jesus on mock trial in Caiaphas, before Caiaphas the high priest in chapter 14, while they had come up with charges, they had to have something that could stick in a Roman court before a Roman governor. So they're going to have to come up with something different. Well, in fact, they did. We're not told what it is. At verse 1, we are simply told that they had, had held their consultation, and then after they had reached the conclusion of the consulting, they bound Jesus and led him away, delivering him to Pilate. Now we're introduced to another character in the story with the entrance of Pilate. Pontius Pilate, uh, his full name, uh, a name that lives in infamy. If you come from, a, uh, from certain traditions, you may have been accustomed to reciting the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis. And you'll recall one line in that creed says of Jesus that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Part of a Christian liturgy includes his name with reference to the events and their follow-up that are rehearsed for us in this particular chapter. Pilate was the fifth governor, Roman governor, of the land of Judea when the, uh, the system of governing in the provinces had been changed in A.D. 6. He was the fifth in the sequence of governors between the year 6 and the time of Jesus' crucifixion, roughly around 33 A.D. Though the governors normally resided at Caesarea, which was the nice coastal destination, rather than in Jerusalem, it was not uncommon for the governors to come to Jerusalem during the feast days, such as the Feast of Passover, which was being celebrated at this time. It was their means of keeping order in the, in the province because they feared that perhaps as many Jews would gather together, there could be some uprising or some other disturbance that the govern, government would be concerned about. So Pilate's in town for the feast, probably staying in Herod the Great's palace in the city of Jerusalem, and prepared there to do the work of governing uh, as it might come before him at that place and time. Pilate served as the governor of Judea for 10 years, from 26 to 36 A.D., so we find him now at about a little ways past the midpoint of his governorship, uh, had been in office for seven years or so, and it had plenty of time to show his colors with respect to the Jewish people. They were not particularly appealing colors to the Jews. The historians Josephus and Philo both described Pilate as being cruel and very insensitive to the ways and the traditions and the beliefs and practices of the Jewish people. He had not endeared himself to them, even to the point that the Jews had complained to Caesar about him. And so now... Pilate finds himself not only disingratiated with the Jewish people, but he's on, on Caesar's radar screen, just keeping an eye on him to make sure that he's not the cause of problems in the provinces. So there's Pilate that we find, the man who's the governor at this trial that Jesus is going to be placed in. Verse 2 tells us of Pilate's question to Jesus and Jesus' answer. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, before we get to the question that Pilate posed, we might step back and say, where did that question come from? Well, that's where we have to draw an inference. Mark doesn't give us this particular detail, but in a moment we'll, we'll find some evidence that will uh, indicate that this was indeed the fact. What the Jews had determined to charge Jesus with was high treason. 
That is, they were going to say that Jesus claimed to be a king. Now, that would get Rome's attention. They don't care about blasphemy. That doesn't bother them because that's a Jewish thing. But if somebody's going to be king, now you're threatening our province of political rule. And that will get their attention. So we infer from the question that Pilate asked that the Jews charged him with treason in claiming to be the king of the Jews. Now, as you would expect in a court, Pilate, in effect, asks the accused, how do you plead? And so he says, as our translations have it, are you the king of the Jews? But there may be a little more to that question than isn't apparent in the reading I just gave it. Because as that, as that question is constructed, it puts the emphasis upon the word you and probably adds a tinge of sarcasm and maybe even a bit of cynicism to Pilate's question. We might inflect the question this way. You are the king of the Jews? Or are you the king of the Jews? Do you hear the condescending tone in the asking? It's not something that, that comes uh, as, a, as a totally neutral uh, questioning relative to the charge made, but rather some, simply saying, this does not add up. This person standing before me does not have kingly bearing. He doesn't appear to pose any great threat to the Romans. So really, as we might say colloquially in our day, Jesus, however, straightforwardly, and simply answers the question, it is as you say. No plea of not guilty. He says, yes, I am the king of the Jews. It's a tranquil answer. It's short, brief, to the point. Some think it's evasive, but really not. It's full admission of the reality of who he is. Because Jesus is the Christ. We sang that earlier. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. You see, the answer was fully correct. Because Jesus indeed, the, the word Christ means the anointed one. And it's reference to Jesus as the anointed king in God's plan. Not only the king of the Jews, not only the king of Israel, the king of all creation, the king of the entire world. That is the Lord Jesus who is on trial in this tin pan courtroom. Well, the chief priests weren't done. In fact, probably hearing the sarcasm in Pilate's questioning, they thought, we need backup because this question isn't likely going to go well our way. Verse 3 tells us the chief priests began to accuse him, and my translation has it harshly. You may see a marginal translation of many things. And I think the of many things probably gets us closer to what transpired, and that is that they were bringing forth some backup. What was in the backup? Well, we learn this from Luke's account, where Luke tells us the charges, more charges than just treason, that the Jews had brought to this occasion. One is that he was uh, subverting the nation. There's one. That might have some political overtone in, in Pilate's court. He, he uh, opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar. That'll really get the attention of a government, won't, won't it, when you've got a tax revolt. And then he claims to be Christ a king. That really comes pretty close to what they had selected from among this litany of accusations to the, the one that they brought of treason. For just a little addition, according to Luke, and this is chapter 23, verses 3 to 5, if you want to check these verses later, 
They said that, that this one stirs up the people by his teaching in all of Judea. In other words, he's kind of a rabble-rouser type. And if you want peace, you don't want a rabble-rouser. Well, these are the charges that uh, the chief priest began to accuse him of, in addition to the one that had already been implied in Pilate's question of the charge. So Pilate now turns to Jesus in verse 4 and 5. Pilate questioned him again, saying, you don't, Do you not answer? See how many charges are being brought against you? Notice, but Jesus made no further answer. And Pilate was amazed. What's so amazing? The fact that a man on trial for his life is not protesting with every ounce of strength and every breath he draws against the, the illegitimacy of these charges being leveled against him. The answer of silence, as we will see, came to be ultimately the powerful answer that the Lord Jesus provided. Now, in verse 6, we have a new entry into this account. It's, you'll notice, at least in my Bible, there's a paragraph marker. So this introduces a new dimension in this trial. Now, at the feast, he, Pilate, used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. It was a custom that, that Pilate had uh, invoked, perhaps to try to gain some goodwill that he needed so desperately. But he really needed it desperately in this occasion because here's the situation as it's unfolded thus far. He's got a Sanhedrin council and uh, those who were attendant to it, more of whom we'll see in a moment, who are in an uproar. They're here pushing their agenda and where they fear it might be slipping through their fingers, they're only ratcheting up the pressure. So here's the making of, a, of an uproar. And Pilate's in a spot. He'd been warned by Rome not to create any disturbances or to let any insurrections occur. This is not going to look good on your resume, Pilate. So he comes up with the idea, you know, maybe I can release Jesus under the provision of clemency that I have established as a custom in favor of the Jews. Give, them, give amnesty to a prisoner of their choosing. Now he's got a good a candidate for a choice, an alternate. Look at verse 7. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. Now here's a good choice. I'm going to release a prisoner. Take your pick. On this hand, we have Barabbas. What do we know about Barabbas? Well, he was a rabble-rouser, an insurrectionist, trying to upset Roman order. That would have made him something of a folk hero with some of the Jewish people because there was a whole sect of them known as the Zealots. They were adamantly opposed to Roman rule and sought to subvert it at every chance they could. Maybe you're familiar with the movie Masada, the story of a, the last stand of a Jewish uh, uh, group down at the fortress that Herod had built in the southern desert of the Red Sea. Uh, in 70 AD, when the Romans had destroyed the city of Jerusalem, this band of zealots fled to that fortress, and they, they pitched their tents, camped out there, and stayed for two years while the Romans finally breached that fortress, and uh, the whole lot of them perished, if you remember the story. 
Barabbas might have been something of a folk hero, but there, there was a certain tarnage on, tarnish on his image because in insurrection he had committed murder, and we learned from John that he was also a well-known robber. So maybe there would be something that would make him uh, a folk hero, but you, gotta, you got two of the Ten Commandments gone with this guy in terms of committing murder and robbing. So this guy is no prize to be sought in the release of a prisoner at Passover. The alternative that Pilate offers then is Jesus, this man who has not yet been convicted, actually, but has been charged with a crime that he looks very unlikely to be guilty of. So we've got Pilate making this offer of choice. Now there's another wrinkle that gets into this that we see in verse 8. Because the crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. What's this crowd? Well, we read further and find out more about them as we uh, look, for, look to verse 9. Pilate answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Jesus, in other words. For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. In other words, Pilate wasn't buying the charge at all. He knew what was going on here. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Now here's the linkage between the chief priests, and we've already seen at length in this account, and this multitude of people, many of whom may have been on their payroll or certainly part of their loyal company, who would not have been at any point allegiant to Jesus. Uh, sometimes I think we misunderstand the crowd dynamics as they're described in the Gospels. We have a number of very pious Jews who've gathered in Jerusalem for the, uh, the Feast of Passover. And there had been a number of pious Jews who uh, entered into procession at the triumphal entry on the Sunday before the events that are transpiring now. And some have said, well, it was that group that was so pious at one point that's turned on Jesus. I'm not so sure that's the case. I suspect that this was a segment of a crowd that was already predisposed in the direction of opposition to Jesus, and they were just now being played by their heroes, the chief priests, to join in the chorus calling for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. The chief priests, according to verse 11, stirred up the crowd to release Barabbas for them instead. Jesus then, or, or Pilate then, uh, asked, What should we do with Jesus, whom you call the King of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. Now there's some dynamic that's happening with this crowd that we don't want to miss. We'll make more of this later. But notice that what started out as a crowd is beginning to look a lot more like a mob. We're hearing not only a, a group of peaceful protesters who've come to make a statement. We're beginning, to, we're beginning to see something of a mob hysteria set in in the, the relentless press of their calls for crucifixion. And so verse 13 tells us they shouted back, crucify him. Pilate, still wanting to, to uh, create the climate of evidence in support of charges, says in verse 14, why, what evil has he done? And their answer was not an answer to the question. Their answer was just, as the text has it here, to, uh, to uh, shout all the more, or to shout exceedingly, or to to uh, shout in mob psychology, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
Look at some of the film you see of, of uh, protest rallies that get out of hand, and that's exactly what you see develop as a mob psychology begins to set in. Well, verse 15 winds up the account. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate, three things, released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, we're coming back to that in a moment, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. There's the verdict in this court. Don't pass quickly over the scourging. The scourging was an act of horrible brutality. A Roman scourging consisted of 40 lashes with a dreaded instrument called the flagellum whip. The flagellum whip was a, uh, uh, consisted of thongs, probably uh, an animal skin of some sort, maybe a leather of some kind, braided together, and into it was braided bits of bone and lead, sharp bits of bone and lead. Forty lashes administered with that whip. Eusebius writes concerning the flagellation of some martyrs in the early church this way, and these are his own words. They were torn by scourges down to deep-seated veins and arteries so that the hidden contents of the recesses of their bodies, their entrails and organs, were exposed to sight. So brutal were the beatings that many people who received them did not survive them. They died of the flogging itself. When the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 52, verse 14, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, might he have been foretelling this beating. So badly was he beaten, and yet he survived it so that he could be crucified. There's the account of the trial. Now, what do we know of the motives? They were mixed. You'll see on the back, the identification of the four primary characters here are groups of characters. We start with the Jewish leaders. And I would summarize their motives in three words. Hateful, unbridled, envy. Hateful, unbridled envy. Now there are some things that their motives were not that we might want to think about for a moment first. They were not motivated by a quest for justice. That's what courts ought to be about, but that wasn't their agenda. If it were their agenda, they would not have found it necessary to concoct a story. They wouldn't have been up all night trying to find a consistent story by which Jesus could be crucified. They would have said, we want what's right and just in this matter, Jesus. Let's tell it like it is. But, of course, that wouldn't result in a crucifixion, would it? And so there was no interest in justice on their part. 
evident in the fact that they fabricated and deceived with the charges they brought. It's also clear they weren't motivated by a love for Rome. They weren't coming and saying, look, Pilate, we got, you got a problem developing here, but we're going to help you out with this one. We're bringing this guy. He's going to stir up a horrible ruckus for you. He's already been doing it. He's going to stir up a ruckus you don't want. So here, we're just telling you he's calling himself a king. Why don't you get rid of him? Now, that might be what a person who loved Rome would do. But remember, these folks had no love for Rome. What they did know was that if they wanted to accomplish their agenda of being rid of Jesus, they had to pander to Roman interests. And that's the motivation that resulted in the charge that they finally came up with. Now, we might think that they were motivated not in the the charge that they brought before Pilate, but in the, the claim that they made in chapter 14 that Jesus was a blasphemer. Now, that sounds like a religious and a pious reason. Anybody who blasphemes has diminished the person of God. And that would be a legitimate motive to take action against Jesus if it were true. But it's not blasphemy if it's true. And it is true. So what do we have here with these folks? Their motivation is not to establish the truth of the identity of Jesus. They're looking for cover for their own unbelief. How are we doing for good motives in a court? Well, here's what their motives were. If the things I've just described were not their motives, why such hate-filled rejection? The whole of the gospel accounts gives us the clues to that we could go back just a few days to that that sunday event at the temple when jesus came in and cleansed the temple overturning the the tables of the money changers and saying to them my my father's house shall be a house of prayer you have made it a den of thieves now that's what andrew carnegie would tell you is a way to win friends and influence people what did he do he called it as it was. He rebuked them for the, the hypocrisy of their piety, their supposed piety. And they surely did not like the fact that Jesus went about exposing their sin. Repeatedly through the gospel accounts, we find those occasions where the leaders would seek to ensnare or entrap him in a trick question or a loaded question or something other that they could, could discredit him with. And every time they lost because they were dealing with the one who is absolute and perfect true truth the one who is perfect in his character who's the the one who is capable of of uh, performing majestic miracles and the one who taught with authority and power not as one of them did you see, they were so consumed by all of those things that Jesus represented that showed the superficiality of their faith, the shallowness of their professed goodness, and the depth of their sin. And they didn't like it. Now, just as a sidebar, it won't cost you any extra. Do we like it either? And it takes the grace of God the grace of repentance that he grants us in our own lives 
to respond any differently when we're called up short by the realities of Jesus and his person and his ways and the teachings of his word. But these leaders would have no part of what Jesus stood to, to, uh, to teach them and to call them to. Pilate had it right in verse 10. Because as we read there, he says, he was aware that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. You see, in all of these encounters through the course of his life, Jesus had shown himself to be who he is, the true Son of God, the one anointed and sent to redeem his people. And they were envious, jealous of the fact that he had that that they did not possess. And furthermore, that it was a winsome thing and attracting a following that they feared they were losing. Envy was their motive. And it was hateful and bitter. But what about the crowd? What's their motive in this situation? Two words for them. Irrational hysteria. Why did they jump on the wagon and call for Jesus' crucifixion? We saw it earlier in verses 9 and following, the irrationality of their, their claims. Peter offered them a choice that would, would be to, uh, to make a sane choice. Compare the two that I will release one, of which I release one. Which one makes sense to release, Barabbas or Jesus? Well, if you want a good life, take Jesus. Why Barabbas? Pilate has to be astounded at the insanity of that choice. But remember, these folks had something that would incline them in that direction. They had the agitation, the incitement of the chief priests, their leaders, of whom they were followers. Their irrationality is evident further when down in the, later in the account where their, their calls for crucifixion were growing increasingly intense, where G, where where. Pilate said, what shall I do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Pilate knew the answer to that question already. We don't find it in Mark's gospel. But if you put the gospel accounts all together, you will find that repeatedly Pilate told this crowd, I find no fault in this man. That was really Pilate's true verdict on this thing. I find no fault in this man. He even went uh, to the extreme of trying to wash his hands of the matter. Remember that? Because he wanted no part of this travesty of justice. Mark doesn't tell us these things. Mark wants us to understand Pilate is complicit here. When he puts the question to the crowd, what evil has he done? They don't answer. A rational response would, would be able to tick off legitimate charges of, that were punishable by death. But they have no such answer. All they do is give the, and here's the second characteristic of their motive, hysteria. Crucify him, crucify him, over and over again. A mob psychology taking over and creating the ruckus that Pilate so dreaded. So we come to Pilate's motives and say, what was driving him? Three words, cowardly, expedient, placation. Cowardly, expedient, 
placation. Pilate was a coward for refusing to stand up and do his job of executing justice. That would, that's what courts are about, and that was what his role in that situation was. He was to carry out and hold forth justice. He knew full well that Jesus was not guilty of any crime, much less a capital crime. Though he sought ways to spare Jesus throughout the course of this exchange, verse 15 is the, uh, the capstone of his guilt. When he released Barabbas, ordered Jesus scourged, and handed him over for crucifixion. It was a cowardly response. And when you think about it, why would he have reason to be a coward? He has all of the authority of the Roman government behind him. Can't he control just a small little province? He knew what was right. He'd even been warned by his wife. Don't do it. And yet, despite all that he knew to be right, he did the wrong thing as a coward. Now, related to that is the expedience involved in the decision that he made. Pilate was a politician. Governors are that. Expediency, however, rather than Roman justice, was the motivating force in his life. He wanted to keep his job, just to put it boldly. And he knew that he was a politician with a dilemma. If there was a, a ruckus being uh, aroused here, and if it got back to Rome that he's having more trouble with the Jews, they've already complained about him, and now they're complaining about him again, it would be disadvantageous to him. He might even lose his job. There was a great deal at stake for Pilate in this matter. And so to protect his own interests, he took the easy out, the expedience which led to the placation that is explicitly stated in verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd. He wanted to satisfy, and this is an ironic thing, he wanted to satisfy the demands of a people that he despised. Why would he want to please them? He thought so little of them. He thought so little of their claim of this peasant king. Why would he want to satisfy them? The motives are, in a sense, understandable because they are so fallenly human. But there's more to this story because we haven't yet talked about the motives of Jesus. Three words for Jesus' motives. Constant, humble, submission. There's a constant that runs throughout this entire narrative. It's a, it's a constant that really runs through the whole of the gospel and the whole of the life of Jesus. When we were in the Garden of Gethsemane a few weeks ago, uh, we took note of the fact that, that Jesus, uh, according to the psalmist in Psalm 40, and re, uh, restated in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus, when he entered in the, into the world, with a body prepared for him, came to do thy will, O God. That was a stated intention of his mission from the start. And the will of God was known from before the incarnation because the plan of redemption is from the foundation of the earth. 
It was actualized in time in the events that we're seeing, but it was determined in the mind of God and decreed as his wise and perfect plan from the start. And Jesus was very conscious of the fact that his entire life was to march in step with the will of God. That's constant. And when we found him in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember that prayer of agony. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Part of that cup was a scourging that we saw in verse 15. Part of that cup was going to be hanging on a Roman cross with further affliction of physical suffering. But the worst of the cup that Jesus drank was the cup of the wrath of God poured out upon him so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. That was the cup that Jesus would have had passed from him if it is possible. But remember that he then confirmed his commitment in the second part of that prayer when he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so when Jesus went from that, that uh, Garden of Gethsemane, under arrest, taken to Caiaphas's hall, put on trial before Caiaphas, he didn't open his mouth and protest. When he came to Pilate's hall, the only utterance we heard from him was, in response to the charge, it's as you say. Why the silence? Because Jesus knew that he indeed was, is, and will be the king, the king of kings and lord of lords, over both Jews and Gentiles, over all of creation. No further answer was required. He knew that the charges were false, but he also knew that God's plan called for his condemnation. And so the main motive that drove Jesus in eloquent silence was his submission to the known will of God as it pertained to his, his future. The prophet Isaiah put it in these words. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. And so we find among the motives here a mixture where three are totally corrupt and one that is absolutely pure. This scene in the crucifixion narrative has taken us to Pilate's judgment hall, a place where truth and justice should be the governing motives. The confluence of mixed motives that we saw is evident in this account leads us to see that Pilate's hall was anything but a hall of justice. In this judgment hall, Jesus is falsely accused by the Jews, condemned by Pilate for the very offense for which Barabbas was guilty and yet released. Where is justice in that? But in the face of this miscarriage of justice, Peter gives us some perspective in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 23. Picking up the ideas of Isaiah quoting some, paraphrasing some, Peter writes, Jesus committed no sin, 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But get this part. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That would not be Pilate. He entrusted himself to his father who would judge him righteously. And in the grand scheme of eternity and in accordance with God's gracious redemptive plan, the injustice of Pilate's judgment hall accomplished our redemption. Acts of grave human injustice were overridden by the eternal surpassing justice of God who was in the process of satisfying his own demands of death for sin so that people like you and me, yes, and even people like those who condemned him in Pilate's hall, could stand acquitted before God in his judgment hall. What are we to make of that, friends? This is amazing grace. Worship team, please come, and we will close our service. Join me in prayer, please. Our Father, you make even the wrath of men to praise you. And as we see the, the travesty of justice that was in Pilate's hall that day, we're reminded of the depth of the depravity of sin. But we are also reminded, Lord, that this all was occurring in accordance with your divine plan. And that the death of Jesus would accomplish something that we could never accomplish for ourselves. He would die in our place so that we might live clothed in his righteousness. And as these events set the stage for that crucifixion that we are yet to see in this gospel account, we pray, Lord, that we may be ever reminded that we are bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.